This is the Butterfly Let's Talk podcast from the Butterfly Foundation, your national voice for people living with body image issues and eating disorders. Research tells us that when people think of someone with an eating disorder, they tend to think of a young, wealthy white woman. And while many people who do fit that description certainly are affected, it really doesn't tell the whole story. In this episode, we're going to challenge that stereotype and look at how eating disorders and body image issues affect men and boys, and why they in particular find it so hard to talk about this destructive mental illness. It just became a really unhealthy sort of obsession, just spiraled into, I guess, worse behaviours and really unhelpful behaviours. It's honestly, it's it's still a a daily battle. The main difference is is that I've, I've got three to four years of therapy under my belt now. I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 11, so it was a very um, crucial point in my life. I'm Sam Eichen, and like more than a million other Australians, I have an eating disorder. Eating disorders and body image issues come in heaps of different forms. The most common ones are bulimia, anorexia, and binge eating disorders. That last one, the binge eating one, that's me. Even saying it now in the safety of my studio, reading it from a script that I wrote myself, I still feel a twinge of shame just saying the words. It's been so deeply conditioned from a really young age that my weight is a massive personal failing and that talking about eating disorders is not something people want to do. And it's that stigma that makes this such a difficult category of mental illness to assess. But people affected by eating disorders are as diverse as the spectrum of disorders themselves. This illness doesn't discriminate. And while the stereotype is a young woman, boys and men are just as susceptible We just don't want to talk about it. There's something built into our DNA that makes us just want to suffer in silence and hope that it all goes away. But of course, it won't. Without getting the right help, it'll probably get worse. Men are really reluctant to go and see a doctor in the first place. That's Dr Scott Griffiths from the University of Melbourne. When it comes to eating disorder research in Australia, he's like one of the best minds that there is. I run the physical appearance research team, which runs research on all things to do with physical appearance, including the psychological disorders that people can develop when appearance becomes a big problem for them, including eating disorders. He tells me that study after study shows that men are really reluctant to engage not just with a doctor, but with their friends or with a psychologist or anyone at all. One of the easiest things to point blame at is masculinity and adherence to traditional ideas of that which discourage uh, help seeking because self-reliance and being emotionally equipped and in control is a part of that traditional masculine archetype and sure enough the dudes who have muscularity oriented eating disorders they are particularly adherent to those ideals of masculinity and i think that is a large contributor of why the eating disorder field just does not see those men According to figures from Butterfly, about 36% of people known to be experiencing eating disorders identify as male. But Dr Griffith says it's really difficult to get an accurate assessment. If we assume that the eating disorders that we see and know about now are all that are out there, then men are a minority of eating disorder diagnoses, except perhaps for binge eating disorder when men account for approximately half. But he says we're slowly starting to see the emergence of a larger pattern. What research teams around the world are finding is that if you accept that how eating disorders manifest differs depending on the population you're looking at, it would not surprise me if 
there are many more men with eating disorders out there. We just don't see them because we're not ready to look for them. They don't come and see us. He's chosen and it's Brock McLean. He'll kick from 30. The banana ball. McLean takes it. He runs in. He's kicked three and it's back to within a goal. My name is Brock McLean and once upon a time I played AFL. I played at Melbourne for six years. I think 94 games and then um, Carlton for five years and I think I played 63 games there. So finished up at the end of 2014 and and since then I've been on um, a pretty sort of a, a roller coaster ride, I guess you could say, in terms of my mental health. Brock McLean is one of three men who've taken the really brave step of speaking openly and publicly to us about their struggle with eating disorders. Next, we have Mitch from Sydney. He's been struggling with an eating disorder since his early teens. I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 11, so it was a very crucial point in my life for experiencing something completely horrendous, but also experiencing something horrendous that is perceived as female. And from Geelong, Braden says he's been experiencing his eating disorder since he was eight years old. I could just physically see around me that I was I was bigger than a lot of my mates. Yeah, and I guess that kind of then introduced the thoughts around, well, why am I bigger than, than my mates? And it was made quite clear pretty early on that that was a bad thing. So it was always constantly growing up, something that I thought I had to change. I always thought I had to change my body in the way of losing weight. Body dissatisfaction is a huge risk factor for eating disorders especially among younger men and boys. And remember, high-performing athletes in male competitions tend to be young men. Brock McLean describes himself as an all-or-nothing kind of guy, whether it was study, footy training or nutrition. If Brock perceived at the time it was worth doing, he was all in. There was a period in my career where I was injured a lot and my uh, leg speed, which wasn't great to start with, became even more troublesome. So part of uh, my solution was to strip a bit of weight. I was naturally a sort of a big, solid guy. I wasn't overweight or anything. I was just very sort of a, a stocky build myself. And the, the clubs that I at just felt that if I shed a few kilos, that will really help me, I guess, with my running capacity. Maybe also help out with a bit of my speed as well. So so my diet became integral, you know, to, I guess, to that aspect of my life. And, you know, I was a very all or nothing person. So when it came to dieting and, you know, eating the right food, I took that very, very seriously. And I became quite obsessive. A lot of, you know, weighing food and, and sort of depriving myself of some of your, your junk food or your bad foods, you know, just so I could say to myself that I was doing everything in my power, you know, to do the right thing in terms of my diet. And it just became a really unhealthy sort of obsession, just spiraled into, I guess, uh, worse behaviors and really unhelpful behaviors, um, you know, because I just sort of told myself in my head that, you know, if I ate anything you know sort of bad or that wasn't nutritious or healthy that you know i was going to put on weight in effect that was going to affect my football career and things are going to get worse and eventually i wouldn't get picked for the team and and no and that would be my downfall so it just became this really really unhealthy obsession just very out of touch with reality and you know sort of playing a really unhealthy story out in my head that um yeah if i ate anything bad that that was going to negatively affect my football career So Brock's experience is from when he was a young adult, but there's increasing data telling us that body image issues are affecting people much younger. 
A recent study found 55% of boys aged between 12 and 18 wanted to alter their body in some way, while another found half of 14 to 16-year-old boys were taking muscle-building supplements. Earlier, Mitch told us he was diagnosed with anorexia at the age of 11, and for him, it compounded from there. 11 is incredibly young and and we do know that eating disorders uh, are manifesting in young people which is which is heartbreaking Um, childhood is is such a vulnerable period of of development and and in my mind it's a it's a period where kids should just be allowed to um, run free in the world and 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 be be innocent and to spend you know what was a better part of my childhood and adolescence and early adulthood in a, in a place of negative introspection where everything I articulate about myself was negative and how I looked and how I appeared to the world, but coming out uh, as gay in that, in that instance, you know, I remember I came out first when I was 16, which was um, at the peak point of uh, a, quite a significant relapse for me. Those years were like a, a rogue firework in a tin shed. It was... Um, it was everywhere and it was loud and it was noisy and it was bright and it was weird. Yep. Um, th- things did get really bad there for a period of time, um, particularly in my early in my early 20s. For reasons that we'll get to shortly, men are far less likely to ask for help with eating disorders than women. For Brayden, that reluctance to reach out almost had tragic consequences. I did everything, I guess, wrong in the sense of... Um, you know, I, I bottled it all up and it got to the point where, yeah, it was it was very unbearable and I felt like that taking my own life was, was the only way out of this. Um, and, and obviously I was unsuccessful in doing that, um, but from there I was taken to hospital and, um, and then that's kind of where, you know, it was all brought to my family and my close friends' attention that I was really unwell and, and really struggling and, um, and then that's how I kind of got the support that I really needed. Back in the research lab at the University of Melbourne, Dr Griffiths tells us there are lots of ways that men and women differ in the way their eating disorders present. So if we're looking for the stereotypical behaviours usually associated with women, it's easy to see how eating disorders in men could go unnoticed. Men on average tend to be quite different. It stems from the types of bodies that men and women want for themselves. If you take 100 boys and 100 girls and you say, hey, what do you want to look like? What stresses you out? How do you think you should look? They'll give very different answers. Girls will describe wanting to be thin or skinny or toned. They probably won't mention things like their height, for example, or to be conspicuously muscular. But boys will. They'll use terms like, I want to be jacked. I want to be built. I want to be tall. And the basic thesis is that Eating disorders reflect the differences in how people go about trying to get those bodies for themselves. Brock said he had a lot of trouble accepting that he had a problem in the first place. And he was reluctant to make that first step and just reach out and tell someone that he had a problem. As far as he was concerned, it was a sign of weakness. And football players need to be strong. I was never someone who was comfortable with talking about feelings 
or, you know, what was going on inside, you know, my own head or my own body, let alone something as serious as an eating disorder. Um, that was always a real struggle for me. And I guess on top of that, I grew up in a very old school family, you know, no complaining, no whinging. It was just anything that happened to you just had to suck it up and get on with it and, you know, just, just yep, deal with it. Yep. So having that sort of added unseen pressure, you know, that I put on myself that, you know, oh, old school family, got to see that I'm tough, I can't complain. That just compounded everything as well. I mean, I guess it all just started just by going to uh, a psychologist that was, you know, over three years ago. And and even then, I was very reluctant and very hesitant to sort of speak openly and honestly, um, you know, just because of this stigma. You know, if you, if you speak up and ask for help, that it's a sign of weakness. In fact, it was it was the complete opposite. You know, to, to go to someone who you don't know and put yourself in a really vulnerable position and say, hey, I'm struggling here. I've got a, this going on or that going on is a huge sign of strength. So I guess changing the, yeah. I guess the storyline in my head was something that took, you know, a lot of therapy to sort of to get to a point where I could see it as a sign of strength uh, and not as a sign of weakness. Mitch from Sydney also struggled with the stigma that comes with being a man, but as a gay man, there was another level of complexity. So there were these compounding um, elements of eating disorder, masculinity, and the conflict and the conflict between that of experiencing a disorder that is predominantly seen as, as female, which threatens that masculine aspect, but also at the same time not identifying with the masculine aspect because of my emerging sexuality. So there was there was all of these things that kind of um, acted as a melting pot to to an experience which was just confusing and complex and overwhelming. What drives eating disorders and what drives negative body image are distorted thinking patterns around body image, around how we think we look and how we feel about our bodies, um, how we compare ourselves to others, um, the societal impacts of pumping out unrealistic appearance ideals into the culture and saying as a male this is how you should look as a gay male this is how you should look as a straight male this is how you should look as an athlete this is how you should look as this is how you should look and we know that's not the case we know that um, there are so many unrealistic expectations placed on young people and, and people of all ages that that cause or, or at least contribute to negative thinking about their appearance because we, we do compare. We're, we're wired to do that to some degree, but when we compare and say, hang on, I'm less than that, and that image that I'm comparing myself to is actually fake, we're fighting a losing battle. Back in Geelong, Braden can relate to both stories to a certain extent. He says the stigma was a major factor in his reluctance to seek help until it was almost too late taking the mickey out of your mates about the way they look and and how you know you greet them you know or hey how you going big fella all that kind of stuff um just kind of i guess yeah really puts the emphasizes the anxiety around talking about it because um you know a lot of people a lot of a lot of blokes you know it's it, it is seen as a bit um of more of a woman's problem to talk about the way you look um so it's definitely it's just gets all bottled up and then um, you know, it gets to that kind of point where, yeah, you, you just don't know how to bring it up or how to talk about it. So I guess, you know, you just suppress it for as long as you can. I think that I think as I got older and, um, you know, the longer that I kind of dealt with the eating disorder alone, um, 
the, the harder it got to reach out for help and um you know i guess the yeah this the stigma side of it was you know for me coming from um a particular sporting background where there's so much focus on your physical health and how you're performing on on the field or on the court and and what you look like while you're doing that that there's never any room for a conversation about how you're actually going mentally it was it was yeah definitely a real struggle to even just kind of comprehend that I could get help um, so I think for a long time I didn't even know that there were services available um, you know things like headspace and that that, that are free um, for, for you know for kids and for, and for youths and that so um, yeah it was also just that knowledge of just not even knowing that, that those things even exist, existed. Overcoming these issues and encouraging men who are at risk to come forward and ask for help requires a bit of -of out-of-the-box thinking, according to Dr Griffiths. In order to reach men, you have to go where they already are. He says one of the most successful surveys taken recently was called Gay Bodies Worldwide, and to reach their target audience, they used a platform they already knew was being used by gay men. They ran advertisements in the hookup app Grindr, and the results were record-breaking ultimately recruited 8,000 people into that study, which is the largest longitudinal study of gay men in history. We did that on a $30,000 budget. So they found the platform that they would use to reach the target audience, and then they designed the campaign. But how could you apply that logic to other demographics or to reach a broader category of men? As an example, Dr. Griffiths points towards a group on the social media platform Reddit. This is just where men congregate to, take, to talk about steroids and their reasons for using them and how to do it safely. And advertisers right. won't touch this subreddit because it's involved in illegal activity. The only advertisers doing anything there are advertising supplements and largely fake steroids. So right. if someone wanted to reach a community of 80,000 individuals, of whom a very substantial proportion are going to have the type of of thinking and worries and preoccupations that characterize eating disorders, that could be done. For people who are concerned that they might have a problem, the best place to start is the Butterfly Foundation. I'll throw out their contact details at the end of this episode. For example, they could put you in touch with a psychologist near you who specializes in eating disorders. Wherever you do go for help, though, that first step needs to be reaching out and telling someone what's happening. Each of our guests for this episode struggled to take that first step, and the stigma played a huge part in that. But when they did, it opened up lots of possibilities for recovery. For Brock, it was the body whose job it is to look after the well-being of football players, the AFL Players Association. So I got in touch with the AFLPA, who have been absolutely fantastic for me um, in my recovery uh, journey. You know, they've they've provided all the... um, you know, psychological services um, and mental health, well-being service. You know, they provide all those to their ex-players free of charge. So that was sort of that was the first step, and then you know, sort of seeing um, my current psychologist, and then eventually, you know, seeing a psychiatrist. And you know, my two stints in the Melbourne Clinic, which is a psychiatric yeah. clinic here, you know, based in Richmond. So, um, and you know, the AFLPA paid for all my stays there. So they were they've been absolutely amazing and instrumental. But you know, reaching out to them. First and foremost, sort of got the ball rolling and, um, you know, got me started on my mental health, I guess, recovery. 
the biggest thing, I was, I was, I've always been a very impatient person. So, you know, yeah. my mindset, when I started seeing ones, was like, I just want to be fixed. I just want to get this done and dusted. And really, it's not just going to happen in one or two or six sessions. I've been seeing a psychologist every week for the best part, for over three years. Um, so, you know, you can yeah. get better. Um, you can unlearn bad habits. You can rewire your brain. You can remold your brain. Um, but it just takes a lot of time and hard work and effort and patience and taking a long, long-term view approach um, to getting better. Um, yeah, and right. you know, I I think the one thing that people really need to realise is, as I spoke about before, it is a whole it's a holistic approach. You're going to have to make many changes in your life, but first and foremost. Um, Find a, a psychologist or whoever your therapist is that you really resonate with and you really connect with. Because I think they, you know, from what I've read and what I understand and from my own personal journey, that's the most important thing, you know, you know in your recovery efforts is the connection you have with yeah. your psychologist. For Mitch, it took a long time to find that path to recovery. But now he works for the Butterfly Foundation using his experience to help others take that first step and tell someone about it. You know, my lived experience is, you know, something that I've learned to harness and um, I guess use, for, for the better sense of the word, use for um, a purpose of good and to educate and to advocate and to uh, use as a point of empathy to um because I understand when I'm, when I'm hearing people's stories that I can say, oh, that would be tough, but to actually really understand how tough that is offers a sense of uh, I'm, I'm here with you in that and because I know how vulnerable it can be for people to share their stories and I know how um, nerve-wracking it can be um, because, as we know, an eating disorder and body image difficulties are incredibly... Uh, insidious and uh, shrouded in uh, a deep sense of shame and guilt and it's exactly those feelings of shame and guilt that to some degree uh, prevent people from wanting to share their experience and sharing their experience could be with with anyone it could be with the first time that they share with a health professional uh, a friend a family member a partner so being able to actually draw upon my own lived experience to say I know how tough that is and it offers accurate and empathy and a chance to actually get on the same page as someone and um, know what they're experiencing to help them push through those anxiety, that nervousness and anxiety around sharing their experience. Braden found his road to recovery when he finally reached out to a psychologist who helped him identify the problem and then helped him find specialised care. But he says it'd be much easier for young people if more celebrities and people who already have a platform People like Brock McLean spoke publicly about their struggles. If you got people with, you know, a following, and whether they're athletes or actors or um, whoever whoever they may be, um, I think when you know when we look at those people, we put them on that pedestal of, you know, that they're almost not human and that they don't struggle with, um, you know, mental things that you can't see, and that's because you know they're so good at what they do or they have all this money. Um, and I think if more of them were to, yeah, come out and, and talk about their experiences, um, you know, in a, in a real educational way, um, I think it definitely normalises these thoughts that we have um, 
and, and trying to bring people together and, and understand that, yeah, you know, one, there is help out there. Um, two, you're not alone. And like three, something can be done about it. You know, you don't have to live like this the rest of your life. Having those conversations, providing a platform and allowing people to speak publicly about their experiences is what we do here at the Butterfly Let's Talk podcast. But looking to the future, Dr. Griffiths says we need a large-scale change in attitude or what he calls a reckoning. We're, we're approaching the point where technology is allowing us to shape our appearance in increasingly radical and permanent ways, whether that's advances in plastic surgery or the advent of gene editing for embryos, things that allow us to shape our appearance to be more in line with an appearance that we value, but which is largely, I would say, co-opted by what society values or deems attractive. So if we're going to reconcile with these technologies, we have to reconcile with how important we want appearance to be in our lives, because it is just unfair to, to have people valuing their appearance and to manipulate their body weight and then to turn around and call them vain or tell them to outright stop when all of society clearly values it so much. I, I think it right. would be useful yeah. for a reckoning where we decide, hopefully, that it ought to be a lot less important because unless we do that, people will still get caught in this bind. If anything from this episode sounds familiar or you think you want to find out more about eating disorders, I really encourage you to reach out. The Butterfly National Helpline is free, safe and confidential. It's open to everyone. Call 1-800-ED-HELP. That's 1-800-334673. You can also chat online or check out all the resources available at the website butterfly.org.au or you can email support at butterfly.org.au. Now, we know that recovery is possible, but effective services are essential. So that number again, 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's 1-800-334673. The Butterfly Podcast is an Icon Media production for the Butterfly Foundation. It's hosted, edited, and produced by Sam Icon. That's me. With the assistance of Belinda Kerslake, Camilla Beckett, and Mitch Doyle. The music is from Cody Martin and Breakmaster Cylinder. With special thanks to Brock McLean. Braden and Mitch for taking the huge step of sharing their story. If you know someone who you think could benefit from hearing this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could share it with them or subscribe to Butterfly Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts.